Hey there. Thanks for listening to Shortwave. We'd love to know what you think about this podcast. Please help us out by telling us what you like and how we could improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash shortwave survey. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. So, oki tenetapi netaniku makoyuksuku ki Corey Gray. Hi, I was just giving a, a greeting in Blackfoot, and I gave my Blackfoot name, which is Wolf's Path, and also my name, Corey Gray. I'm Regina Barber, and I've known Corey for years. We've connected at conferences as fellow scientists of color. I am a senior operations specialist at the LIGO Hanford Observatory in eastern Washington state. LIGO measures ripples in space called gravitational waves. Yeah, so what are gravitational waves? For uh, I guess the main thing I would say that all of uh, this comes from uh, Albert Einstein. It comes from his general theory of relativity in 1915. Basically, gravity is just how masses bend the space around them, and that's the idea of what gravity is in general relativity. If you take this mass and accelerate it in space or space-time, those accelerations vibrate space-time, and those vibrations, those wiggles in space-time, are what gravitational waves are. LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, and Corey has worked there since the beginning. He waited 17 years to see evidence of two black holes colliding into each other. The first direct evidence of gravitational waves. A hundred years almost to the day after Einstein's prediction. Yeah, you can't write a script to make it better than what actually happened. Wow, yeah, tell me more. My shift was from 4 p.m. to midnight, and so I handed off to the operator who's doing the graveyard shift starting at midnight. And I always joke that around by the time I got home and was putting my head on my pillow and closing my eyes, that's about when the signal passed through the earth, passed through me, and it passed through all of us. I'm looking at my arm because I have a tattoo. It's September 14th, 2015. Tell us a little bit more about like, how, what this meant to you, that it meant so much you got a tattoo. I don't have any kids, but that's what I would think it would feel like to have a kid, to like to see the sonogram or see the, the, uh, your, an image of your child for the first time. And that's how it felt to me. And when I saw it, I knew that I would have it on my body. And right around Einstein's birthday or Pi Day, that's when I went to a tattoo parlor in Old San Juan, Puerto Rico, and asked them to Google GW150914. And they did that, and they found the image, and they put it on my body. Oh my God. Okay. okay. For our listeners, can you describe what that waveform looks like? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it just basically looks like a, a wiggly, t- t- two wiggly lines. One line is red, and that's the data from the detector here in Washington state. And the other line, wiggly line, is blue. That's the data from the detector in Livingston, Louisiana. Then, a couple years later, the first detection of two neutron stars colliding occurred. And the week leading up to that event connected aspects of Corey's life. Today on the show, we're talking vibrations through space and the instruments and people that detect them. I'm Regina Barber, and you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. Gravitational waves are really elusive. And Corey Gray says that when the detection happens, there's a little signature in the data that can be processed into a sound. The, the merger detections, we term it, we call it a chirp. And it's basically 
if you look at what the signal looks like, what you're seeing and hearing is the frequency increasing and the amplitude increasing. So some of them are going to be higher in frequency. Some are going to be, be lower. Like I think for the our first detection, it's much lower. So it's all it's a little like whoop. But uh, for this first detection, we had a loud signal, which was uh, capturing the final fraction of a second of two black holes smashing into each other after dancing together, orbiting each other for millions of years. And, and, and that's what we need, because these signals are so, so tiny because they happen from so far away, so long ago, and we need the strongest ones to be able to see with our instruments, which are the most sensitive instruments that have ever been made by humanity. And that's what we need, strong sources, most sensitive instruments to see these really faint ghost-like signals that are passing through us all the time. So tell us about those instruments? Like, what is LIGO? How does a laser interferometer measurement work? So we use an optical setup called an interferometer. So we have a light source, which is a laser, and we take this laser and we shoot it at a piece of glass called a beam splitter. And so half of the light goes right through this piece of glass, and then the other half of the light is reflected uh, off of another surface of this glass. And you have these two twin waves of light that are born and then split from that beam splitter. They go down four kilometer long arms in an L shape. So one's going straight and the other one's going orthogonal to that. So 90 degrees in another direction. Okay, so you have these two identical beams yes. going down 2.5 miles. Yeah, and then th those waves of light hit those mirrors uh, and then they come back to the beam splitter and then they interfere with each other. Uh, we wait for anything to move those mirrors that are four kilometers away down each arm. So any type of length change over that four, four kilometers, we can hopefully see at a sensor back here at the, the, the corner of that L of our detector. And you're, and you're saying that like, you're looking for this length change in these like 2.5 miles and this gravitational wave that's bending space-time actually changes, in my, I like to say changes reality, but changes yeah. that length, right? We're cha it's changing space. <laughs> Definitely, yes. And that's mind-blowing. And I've heard you say that you're basically using a very advanced ruler that can measure these minuscule changes in length. Can you explain that like a bit further? over four kilometers, we can resolve length changes uh, on the order of a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a proton. That's the sensitivity that we have for these LIGO detectors. All right, so now, now we're gonna go in the Wayback Machine, we're gonna go in a time machine, and you're gonna tell me the story of how you came to LIGO. So when, when I was a kid, I always had an uh, inkling towards the sciences. Me too, me too. I received bachelor's of science degrees in physics and applied mathematics at Humboldt State University, and then, and then eventually saw a job announcement in the LA Times for a job up in Eastern Washington State. You were there at the start of this construction, and you waited 17 years, and I remember back in 20, uh, 2001, um, somebody came from LIGO to my university in Washington State, and they're like, any day now, we're gonna detect something. <laughs> Any day now. <laughs> and it was 14 years later, but um, so this first detection happens and it's a huge deal. <laughs> and, and being there must have felt amazing. When I woke up the next morning after the det detection was recorded, that's when you, 
that's when it hit me for the first time. That's when I know that we're officially connected forever to Albert Einstein. We're a part of history. LIGO's goal was to announce the first detection in as many languages as possible. Corey instantly thought of his mother, Sharon Yellowfly. He recruited her to translate news of this breakthrough into the Blackfoot language. My mom did an amazing job. Uh, uh, my mom grew up with Blackfoot as her first language, but for some technical words, there weren't Blackfoot words. So my mom had to invent new Blackfoot words. It, it just, it sounds like poetry. Do you think that there was some contribution to science that you and your mother were doing that like is overlooked or has been overlooked for hundreds of years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is kind of a path that I'm kind of learning on, on my own now because I mean, uh, being an indigenous physicist or indigenous scientist was kind of, for me, a, a lonely uh uh, uh, path. <laughs> but I, I think w with my mom's work, it, it, it kind of taught me a few things. It taught me that our language is important enough to translate astrophysics. And it, 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 it also raised my awareness or my curiosity in looking into indigenous sciences. Uh, for uh, a lot of indigenous peoples, there is that connection to the sky and to space. I mean, my Blackfoot name that I just received a couple months ago is related to the Blackfoot story for the Milky Way. Can you tell us that story? As far as what I know is, uh, uh, I think it's basically, I think it was a winter or sometime when uh, the people uh, were uh, struggling living. They're having a rough time living through winters, getting food, they were starving, and uh, they were approached by these uh, group of people. They were actually wolves that, that, that were in the form of humans, and they, they kind of imparted their knowledge to these suffering people to, to uh, uh, kind of give them uh, ways to survive, like what sort of animals to, to hunt. And then, and then they, they went away, and then the story is that every spring uh, uh, in, in the sky, this, the, this, this, this light that you would see up above you in, in the, at night it, it is the path of these, these wolves that visited uh, our people. Oh. And, and so, like, I understand, well, I can kind of understand why you would get that name because you are sharing this knowledge. Oh, dang. I'd never even thought of that. That's so cool, Gina. Wow. I didn't, <laughs> that's crazy. You're welcome. <laughs> Which brings us to the powwow you had just attended up in Alberta, right before you came back to work for that groundbreaking discovery. Can you take us to that powwow? This particular powwow, we actually had an event that my cousin and I both had uh, thought up. We called it a gravitational wave grass dance special. And so grass dance, <laughs> grass dance is a style of dance in powwows. And for people who don't know, powwows are kind of social events, like intertribal social events for Native peoples in the kind of the United States and Canada. And so when I think of that kind of after the fact, when I, when I was there for this event, we had 17 dancers out there. And I just think of all that power from their prayers, from their, their, their dance for this gravitational wave grass dance special that occurred that night. I just think there's power in that. And it led right up to this huge moment in your career. Did you feel any connection there? So 
I mean, th- that's one of the things that I obviously made a connection to that week prior or those, the week and a half prior because after the Grass Dance special on August 10th, I had to basically drive all the way home for graveyard shifts. And that was my first time sitting in the chair to ever have that happen. That first week, that first shift of mine coming back from uh, Siksika, that's when our first binary neutron star was recorded by LIGO. And so, and then that, that one's just a completely different type of detection compared to all of the other ones prior to that, because instead of two black holes, we recorded two neutron stars crash into each other. Okay, Corey, so what's next for LIGO? We'll have a, an, an improved detector. Um, and what's going to happen? We're going to have a, a, a much more sensitive machine. Mm-hmm. So we'll be able to uh, reach further out into the universe. Um, but I'm always holding out for what's going to be, uh, what can be new, like what, what's going to be new, supernovas that are close to us. If we could uh, be online when one of those occur, that would be a first for us. That'd be so cool. But I think my favorite one would be something that would be a complete surprise to theorists and to, to all of us that we hadn't thought of. Do you feel that there's like the Blackfoot way of understanding the universe? It can teach scientists like the kind of what do I want to say? Western science as well. Yeah, I mean, um, when I sat back and thought about what, what is general relativity, and, and it does make me think about or harken back to uh, indigenous science, that connection that indigenous people have to, to the world around them is, is, is such a prevalent concept, and, 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 and you see it in all these other cultures. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think about when I think of... Uh, uh, Einstein and his general theory of relativity because that's what he's kind of explaining how all masses are connected to the space, space time around them. Corey Gray, thank you so much for coming to talk to us and telling us all about your your work at LIGO. And thank you, Gina. It was a pleasure. This episode was produced by Devin Schwartz, edited by Gabriel Spitzer and fact-checked by Ubi Levine. Beth Donovan is our senior director, and Anya Grenman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. Thanks for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. 